Welcome to the Outdoor Feast by Modern Carnivore. If you're new to hunting, fishing, or foraging, we welcome you to the conversation. Get ready for stories and insights that start in the Northeast, but range to the South, Far West, and wide open spaces in between. Now, here's your host, Todd Waldron. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Outdoor Feast Podcast. It is great to be back and with you this week. Fall is coming. It's uh, an exciting time of year. Hope you're all getting outside. And this week, we have an exciting conversation with author Bathsheba DeMuth, uh, who wrote Floating Coast. It's a highly publicized, wonderful book about the environmental history of Bering Strait. We're talking hunting ethics. We're talking environmental history. Uh, She's an amazing person. And we're going to get into that. But before we do, I'm with my good friend, Mark Norquist. How are you, Mark? Not too bad, Todd. Yourself? I am doing well. Thank you. (laughs) It is mid-September. Fall's coming. Uh, You know, summer went by quick. What have you been up to? Man, this summer just flew by. You've been busy. I've been busy. I feel like we barely caught up. Uh, I didn't get out to do nearly as much as I'd hoped. And we're already in fall, the best time of the year. Um, yeah, it's been busy though. You know, we, um, I, I was supposed to head on a, on a boundary waters trip with my son a few weeks ago, but literally minutes before we were leaving, I ended up, uh, having a little accident, broke five ribs, which, uh, cut that trip rather short, which is a bummer. We were all set to head up to some really deep border lakes up on the Canadian border to go after lake trout. So we'll have to plan that for next year. But then, um, you know, that was heading right into wild ricing season we've been having here in Minnesota the last few weeks. Um, our our friend Greg Cavalli and his son Pete, uh, mentors uh, for Modern Carnivore, had a couple people from Idaho come into town to to go wild ricing for the first time, which was pretty exciting. Um, it's been tough with the drought. So far this this summer, though, um, because with such low water levels, the rice is just, you know, it's behaving in different ways and it's really tough to get canoes through. That's really the only way you, you can you can harvest it here in Minnesota is manually in a canoe with uh, using using flailing sticks and uh, and rice poles. But uh, but yeah, so, you know, we're on the back end of the wild racing season. And then this coming weekend is opening of small game. And uh, so we're actually in a couple weeks going to do a mentored squirrel hunt in southeast Minnesota through a partnership with uh, the Minnesota Land Trust. So that's pretty exciting. So it's it's busy. The busyness continues, but it's fall, uh, the best time of the year. How about you? Yeah. So first off, I'm I'm sorry to hear that you broke five ribs. That is no joke. Um, that's a lot to deal with, uh, especially just getting prepped to go on a, an incredible trip into the Boundary Waters. Uh, so hopefully next year um, you'll be able to pick right back up on that. And it is so exciting to hear about wild racing. Um, that is something that um, coming from the Northeast, I've, I've seen some social posts on that, like on Modcarn, and it's so intriguing. And uh, I think it's just something that's really cool. And so, yeah, and so I have been busy. We've done a couple of camping trips this summer, a little bit of fishing, but not much. It's been incredibly wet. So while you've been facing extreme heat and drought in Minnesota, we were deluged with about 12, 14 inches of rain in July alone. Really? And so the ri- yeah, the rivers are washed out. I haven't fished or fly fished all since probably June. And um, we had a really wet camping trip, but it's all just weather. It's all just what you got to deal with. Um, looking forward to fall. Probably going to get out 
our New York bird season starts October 1st. Probably try to get out a few times for bird season. Um, and then fall will be here before you know it. So um, not going to have as much time to hunt this year with school, but we'll definitely take some time around Thanksgiving to get out um, in the deer woods and stretch my legs. So uh, looking forward to it. It's a, it's a cool time of year. It is. It's the best time of year. And, you know, I, I'll be curious what our colors look like with this drought we've been having. You know, last week when I was out putting some deer cameras out, um, I mean, I was going through these cedar swamps that usually have standing water on them and they were just completely dry. And so I'll be curious also in terms of, of you know, patterns uh, of, of the wildlife, of how that's changing it uh, with such a lack of, of water. You know, they, there a lot of people are saying, um, you know, it could be it could be a good waterfall uh, season for Minnesotans because the Dakotas are so dry that maybe a bit, bit of the flight pattern is going to come this way because we've got deeper water. We don't have those shallow shallow standing water areas like the Dakotas that are completely dry. But, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's a good time of year, even, even with those challenges and, uh, can't wait to get out in the woods. Can't wait to hear more about it. And I think that that's a good segue talking about landscape impacts and effects and like how things change and weather and all of those kinds of big things, because this week we're talking with Dr. Bathsheba DeMuth from Brown University. I read her book, Floating Coast, last year. It's like an environmental history of the Bering Sea, and she is amazing. Um, when she was 18, I think she grew up in the Midwest. Uh, I, Iowa. Up, I just watched a video uh, that she had out there. She said she grew up in Iowa. So. so she grew up in Iowa. She moved to the far north and lived with a host family like above the Arctic Circle um, when she was young, like 18, 19 years old. And so she talks on the podcast about that influence and what it's like living in a local community and like this this interconnection that they have with the land and with caribou and with salmon and with just like how they live and everything and how that influenced her philosophy and her interest in environmental history and just like how she came about writing um, Floating Coast. We're talking about hunting ethics. Um, we're talking about interconnections and we're talking about things like reciprocity around food systems and interrelationships. I don't know. For people that hunt, we all know that the, the landscapes that we love impact our lives, right? And so this is a really cool, thoughtful, deep dive into kind of the history of this place and like how things intersect between like our ideas about a place and what we're trying to do and the place itself and what the realities are, you know, it's, it's cool. Sounds like a really thoughtful conversation. It does. She, uh, does she actually have a background either when she grew up or when she was living way up North? Did she hunt and fish as, as part of that lifestyle? I think, you know, I don't want to speak for her. We didn't get into that too much. And of course, this is a hunting podcast, so I should have asked. Uh, but, you know, her host <laughs> family definitely did. Yeah. And, you know, and she talks about it and we talk about the ethics around it and everything. So I get the impression, I don't want to like put words in Bathsheba's mouth, but she is definitely, um, she had direct experience with um, with hunting and fishing and salmon and caribou 
and living on the land and what that all means in terms of knowing where your food comes from. I don't really know what her direct participation was, whether she was hunting directly or if she was just, um, you know, involved in it. It's kind of a food system for their community. You know, and, and I guess thinking about that, it's interesting because I was just having a conversation the other day with somebody and I and I said, you know, we have, when we do these butchering clinics uh, in the fall here in Minnesota, we have people come to them that really uh, a lot of times are new hunters, but it's also people who don't have any interest in in actually hunting themselves, but they want to understand that process of breaking down a deer, what it's like, how it works. Um, and and I think that is as critically important as as getting new hunters out there is is just getting people aware and understanding of what the hunting ethic is about and how we are connected to nature and these animals in a very good and positive way. Even if that person says, you know what, it's not for me, but they can appreciate it and they understand it now. So that's you know, even if she doesn't hunt or fish at all herself that it sounds like that appreciation, she's got an appreciation for it and an understanding, which is great. Yeah, well said. And and the reality is, is that as much as we're passionate about recruiting new hunters and inviting people into this space and putting out the welcoming mat, there's just, there's still a large majority of people out there that, um, that don't hunt and fish, but having an appreciation and respect for where food comes from and how nature, how nature works and just like how those parts come together. I think is is really important, just like you said. So without further ado, let's just get into this conversation with Bathsheba. And thanks for listening, everyone. Hope you like this combo. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Outdoor Feast podcast. This is Todd. It is great to be with you uh, this week. In the prologue of her 2019 award-winning environmental history book, Floating Coast, author Bathsheba DeMuth asked the question, what is the nature of history when nature is a part of what makes history? And I think for this audience, I think that's a great question because I think we think a lot about how nature influences us and how our decisions influence nature and how there's forces out there that are bigger than all of us that are shaping all of that. And so that's just one of the many reasons I'm so excited to have Dr. Bathsheba Demuth on the podcast this week. And Bathsheba, it is wonderful to be here with you. How are you? Well, thank you so much, Todd. It, it's wonderful to be here too. Um, and the, the subject of this podcast is near and dear to me. So it's great. I first, so I picked up your book there about, I think it was last summer and I started reading it. Uh, it was about a year ago, almost exactly maybe. And uh, I just couldn't put it down. So it's like one of those books that I worked through it in a matter of about a week and it was so well-written and intriguing. And there's, it was such a good um, narrative uh, and in such a good environmental history, uh, and so I'm. That's part of the reason I'm so excited to be here talking with you about it. Um, we're we're going to get into this floating coast, um, and and before we do, would you please just share a little bit about your background as an environmental historian and an author, and explain to people like what you do and what gets you excited? Yes, absolutely. Um, so. I feel like I became an environmental historian due to a series of happy accidents, more or less. Um, and the, the kind of precipitating happy accident that started it all off is that when I was finishing high school, I realized I had no idea what I wanted to study in college. And college is an expensive and kind of long time commitment. So it seemed like I should figure that out. Um, and I convinced my parents that I should take some time between 
between kind of educational, formal educational experiences and put together this really um, very fly by the seat of your pants itinerary uh, of places that would take on somebody who had a high school diploma and nothing else, right? That was pretty much all I had to offer was labor. Um, and the first spot on this tour was um, this village in the Canadian Arctic called Old Crow, where I had sort of managed to make contact with a family that trained sled dogs and needed someone to help uh, manage their dog team, right? You have 40 plus dogs. It's a lot of work. Um, and the way that you learn to mush kind of in North America as you apprentice to somebody. So that was my job. I went up there. I had never met a sled dog. I had never been north of the Arctic Circle. Um, I had barely been out of the United States. This was in Canada, which turns out is actually a different country. Um, and the sort of long story short is that I never made it to any of the other places on that itinerary. Um, and I ended up staying in the Yukon for several years because um, I just completely fell in love with it. That sounds amazing. <laughs> so, yeah. And so like, how did that, how did that um, even come on your horizon then? Like, did you say, did you have a connection up there or how did that, um, what was it that drew you and like that you kind of just like had that connection with like, yeah, this is where I, I want to be. So some of it was dreadfully uninformed kind of romantic uh, conceptions of what the far North was like way too much Jack London as a kid. Um, those ideas were dispelled very quickly on the ground. Um, and the, on the kind of the practical side of it, um, there's an organization in Cambridge, Massachusetts called the Center for Interim Programs that basically helps people find these gap year placements. And I still don't know how my host father got his name on their list, but it happened. Um, and so that, that's how kind of practically I made the connection. So that's, that, that's wonderful. That's, that's fantastic. And so what was it like? Um, going up to Old Crow and being there for a couple of years. And like, how did that, I mean, there's so many things that like experientially it could shape your, your perspectives um, as you move forward with your education and so forth. But just talk about what that was like and like what you learned and what you loved about it. So I think one of the things that um, has, has been really influential to me since being up there is um spending, you know, multiple years of my life and as a pretty young person. So I was the age of the first year students that I now teach here at Brown, um, spending time in a place where there was an enormous amount of learning I had to do, right? I realized basically as soon as I landed in Old Crow that I was unbelievably out of my depth. I had no idea what was going on. Um, I didn't I just had zero clue, right? The learning curve was very steep on the sort of mushing sled dogs front and about everything else, right? Um, Old Crow is a subsistence indigenous community. I was one of the few non-native people there. Um, most people hunt and fish and pick berries and, you know, participate in those kinds of subsistence activities as kind of the, the baseline of how you get through a winter, um, in addition to the fact that they're culturally really important. Um, and I had grown up on a hobby farm, so I wasn't you know, unfamiliar with the fact that humans live in close relationship with animals and depend on them, but they were domestic animals. So it was very different to, um, you know, put together a picture of what it meant to live in a place where the animals that you rely on are wild. And some of them put you in a position on the food chain where you're definitely not at the top. Um, which coming from Iowa, um, historically in Iowa, of course, humans have not always been at the top of the food chain, but in contemporary 21st century Iowa, certainly we are. Um, 
And the, the way that you learn um, in which in country is not by, you know, somebody handing you a bunch of reading. Um, it's by watching people do things and figuring out how to do them yourself. There's kind of this somatic physical capacity that you have to actually achieve for yourself. Um, Cause it's no good if somebody's told you the sort of theoretical principles of how to start a fire. Um, it's really only useful if you can do it for yourself. Um, and I think spending, you know, several years actually reorienting the way that I learned um, to this kind of more experiential observational um, and, and one where the object of it is not the kind of formal kind of Socratic mastery that we talk about in the Western Academy, where you want to be able to like out debate someone and kind of win an argument. Um, it's actually about being able to be a member of a community in a functional way. Can you help provide for other people? Um, can you listen to what they have to say when it's constructive? Can you, you know, actually be of assistance to others? Um, and, you know, I was 18 when I first started learning this way. I don't think I would have articulated it in those words, but kind of looking back at it, I have started to think that that was one of the most important things that I learned. That's an amazing learning experience at that at that age. And that's an amazing life experience at that age, you know, and there's an ecology to it. Like you were talking about understanding the food chain and where you fit in and just like a different learning experience. And like, it's really interesting to me, like studying sustainability, for instance, like everything you're saying about, um, about how we learn and what we work together in the paths to knowledge. Um, that's like, there's this formal Socratic path, but there's also this communal path and, um, you know, it, and there's so much wisdom and value and, and like the intersection of both, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's really amazing. So what was it like, um, coming, you, you were up in, in the Yukon for a couple of years, you said. Yeah. And, 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 and so what was the day to day like for you? Like, what were the challenges? What were the things that you look forward to? So my kind of primary job was to uh, train the the sled dog team. Um, I was a dog handler, which is the sort of technical term for it. Um, so a lot of it was focused on dog care, you know, feeding this, you know, mass of Huskies, training them once it started to snow. Um, and because we were in a subsistence community, that also meant, you know, harvesting fish for them in the fall, particularly chum salmon, which are really important dog food all up and down the Yukon River watershed, um, and caribou and moose. Um, and so just sort of putting by enough food for the winter in the fall. And then as soon as it starts to snow, um, you know, training a long distance sled dog team is kind of like training a human being for a marathon, right? You start with shorter runs and you do some tempo work and you put more weight in the sled sometimes and, and you figure out, you know, how the dogs work together. Um, it was a real crash course for me in the, in having a social space where not all, in fact, the majority of the kind of social entities were not people, right? Because the the relationships between the dogs were as important as my relationship with any individual dog. Sometimes they, you know, really got along with each other. There were dogs that you could never run together because they hated each other. Who knows why? Um, and, and actually learning from them is one of the things that I find the most um, like one of the things that really made me get up in the morning and be like, this is exciting because, um, you know, dogs are able to take in all kinds of sensory information from the world around them that, that people don't have access to. Um, and sometimes really, uh, kind of push back on the decision-making that the musher is, is kind of engaged in the things that 
you know, I would ask them to do, they'd be like, nope. And sometimes they were right. Like we're turning this sled around because there's a storm coming and you just haven't figured it out yet back there person. Um, and so kind of learning, you know, what is it that they know and when do I need to listen to them? Um, and when is the situation where I actually know something and they need to listen to me and kind of negotiating that you really have to trust each other kind of across that species line. Yeah, I can see, um, like one of the themes we'll get into your book a little bit, but like one of the themes that really resonated with me through your writing is like reciprocity and like in a, in a world like that, where there's like reciprocity and interdependence, you know, on so many levels of day to day and like how, how communities work and how, how we live in a day to day basis, you know? So it sounds like, you know, there's this reciprocity with the dogs that, um, you know, with your relationship with them and their relationship with you. Uh, that's just a really cool uh, story. Thanks for sharing that. And like, so when you, um, I think you studied at Brown, right? And then you studied at Berkeley as well. And so how did that whole personal experience then shape your your intellectual curiosity, like going to Brown, going to Berkeley? Like what were you really um, thinking about and trying to focus on with um, with that part of your education. Yeah, this is, again, one of those things that sort of makes sense in retrospect. And when you're in the midst of it, it feels like you're just sort of making random decisions. Um, but I, I realized it sort of in between when I finished my undergraduate degree and when I went to graduate school that my experience living in Old Crow had kind of set up this set of questions um, about the ways that people and the environments that they live in interact. Um, because, you know, I'd, I've been talking about these ways in which, you know, dogs or other aspects of the environment kind of come in and shape what it was that I could do in a day or what kind of decisions I was making. But at the same time, you know, if you spend time in the late 20th or 21st century Arctic, it's really clear that human decisions also matter and are, are changing the facts on the ground pretty dramatically. So it's, it's kind of a back and forth, um, so I, I had these questions about what are the relationships between how different societies think about, you know, what we might call nature out there in the world um, and what it is that the nature itself kind of speaks back to the ways that those ideas are articulated and put into practice. And so I kind of worked through that somewhat as an undergrad and then graduated, still was kind of consumed by these, these questions. Um, and in between my undergraduate degree and starting at Berkeley, um, my husband and I were Peace Corps volunteers um, in this country called Moldova that was a formerly a piece of the Soviet Union. And being there and kind of on the ground amongst the like material reality of the Soviet project made me really think about, you know, what, what does the Soviet Arctic look like? Does it have the same assumptions as the the, you know, the kind of Western capitalist style Arctic that I'm used to. Um, and then I realized that if I was really interested in those questions, I should probably study Russia because there's a, you know, they have a lot of socialism historically and also a lot of Arctic space. Um, so I applied to graduate school to be a Russian historian, not knowing that environmental history was even a field. Um, really kind of stumbled again into that one backwards, even though the questions that really had been kind of motivating me for a long time fit very much in that, uh, in that kind of historical field. Um, and then I sort of, you know, graduate school can have some real downsides, but it also has some real upsides in that it gave me seven years to 
think about this question, right? And the kind of time and space um, to to try to find kind of the actual historical material in which to understand it um, to, and to keep it from becoming really abstract and theoretical. I think the, the part of me that was was trained experientially wanted to keep coming back to what did this just look like for people or for whales or, uh, you know, whomever is involved in the equation. Hey listeners, this is Mark and I hope you're enjoying this episode of the podcast. I just wanted to let you know that in the coming days, we're going to open up registration for our Upland bird hunting course on Hunting Camp Live. And this could be your opportunity to take part in a self-paced online masterclass with support from live interactive webinars and our outdoor mentor community. If this sounds like it might be something for you or maybe a friend who's been thinking about starting to hunt, just go to modcarn.com forward slash upland birds to get more information now there's a limited class size so make sure you check it out today so you can reserve your spot now back to the podcast so that's fascinating and so like everything you just said for people that haven't read your book i mean it's just like it's a perfect segue to start talking about your book about the relationships um, of how people influence the land and what the forces are that are bigger than us and how nature influences us and systems. And like, so you start out floating coast. I love the way you start out floating coast talking about the birth of a bowhead whale in the late 18th century, because there's a temporal, like there's a time element to all of this that plays out. It really is fascinating that um, bowheads, you can talk about bowhead whales and what, what you find fascinating. I'd love to hear that. But like, there's this timeline of, these long horizons of, of bowhead whale life cycles, and then like being um, having both Soviet and American systems kind of shaping uh, Beringia's landscape and people, and like how the, what the what the inputs and outputs are all of that, and, like the harms and like all of that stuff. So talk a little bit about just floating coast and just like how you got started on that and like what, what themes you found around it that were like really interesting. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I, I originally started this project kind of assuming that if um, I took both sides of the Bering Strait equally seriously, that there would have to be some story there because they are, um, in ecological terms, really similar spaces. They have most of the same species. The geology is really very similar on both sides of the strait. Um, the climate is basically the same. And historically, you know, culturally, there's huge connections um, across the Bering Strait. It doesn't, the kind of differentiation between nation states is really, really recent. Um, so the, you know, Yupik speakers are on both sides of the Bering Strait and Anupiak speakers on both sides. Um but then, of course, in the 20th century, it gets split between these two big ideological projects between the Soviet style socialism and American style capitalism. So I kind of embarked on this not knowing much more than that, being like, well, OK, so we have these the, the kind of what the 20th century tries to do to this place. What happens? Um, and I really initially thought of it only as a 20th century story because I was interested in that the question about ideology and the ability to really contrast what the Soviet Union is doing versus what the United States was doing. And then all of my sources, like every possible kind of source, right? Bureaucratic sources from the Russian empire that I was reading in Vladivostok, 
that were written in the 1860s and oral history sources from Yupik whale hunters and, you know, American bureaucratic sources. Everything was saying this story actually starts with whaling. Um, it starts before the United States has any presence in Alaska, uh, you know, formally at all. Um, it starts before really any kind of uh, nation state in the modern sense does. Um, it starts when it's indigenous sovereignty only. And, um, you know, the whalers come in as this kind of unadulterated edge of market capitalism. And this was both kind of a an amazing revelation in the sense that I was like, this this seems really fascinating um, and, and actually at initially really terrifying because I had not planned on starting the story in the middle of the 19th century. Um, I had never been to the New Bedford Whaling Museum's amazing collections of sources. It put a lot more uh, kind of things to read on my horizon. Um, but that, that kind of realization that, you know, where um, kind of intense outsider interest begins is with bowhead whales is the thing that led me to realize that um, both the United States um, and the Russian Empire and then the Soviet Union have really looked to these Arctic territories as places to extract energy from. And that's true long before fossil fuels are the kind of source of extraction. And I think in the, the 21st century, for very good reasons, that's kind of what we think of the Arctic energy story as being about, uh, because in many places it is now, um, both in kind of offshore development north of Russia, in the Arctic Ocean, or Prudhoe Bay in Alaska. But this is actually a much longer history, and it goes back to extracting these kinds of biological energy. And I had this this really kind of eureka moment in an archive in Vladivostok again, um, where I realized that this kind of pattern of Russian and American interest starts where the energy is most concentrated in the ecosystem, which is with whales at sea. And then it kind of moves out to um, seals and walruses that are coastline creatures. Um, and then eventually it gets up onto the tundra where there is kind of less concentrated energy at the level of kind of the primary production of the ecosystems. And so the, the kind of historical trajectory of colonization maps onto the, um, the kind of ecological distribution of energy in space. Um, that is and- absolutely fascinating. Yeah. I mean, it's fascinating. And, and like one thing that I found so compelling about how you wrote that out too, was like starting out, with that theme of energy concentration around the ocean and plankton and the energy, the biological energy transformation of the ocean and plankton into bowhead whales and then the whole ecosystems around it and everything. So it's like so interesting to think about how, how there's this ecological um, and biological reality to energy transformation. And then there's like this ideological kind of approach, mm-hmm. right. Um, to what they were, the Soviets and the Americans were trying to do. Um, through their systems, um, you know, there's so much that's fascinating around that. Uh, what, like, how did, like, explain to people, like, what you found interesting about how this really played out, like, in terms of, like, this concentration of energy and, like, the Soviets kind of having this one worldview around, like, how they see this playing out on the, their side of the strait and the Americans having a very different view. Um, like, as you were working through this, what did you find like most interesting ar- around all of that and maybe how they juxtapose and like how, how that was influencing local people 
So I think when I started this project, I had sort of a, you know, naive American assumption that this was mostly going to be a story of contrasts between the Soviet project and the American one. And there are certainly very important ways in which the two kind of efforts to colonize the Arctic differ. Um, but I was actually really amazed at the ways in which they ended up looking the same. And I think part of why they look the same is that there's this kind of fundamental assumption about how energy should be used, um, which is it's for people. Um, and the kind of the fundamental baseline principle is that if people are doing the right thing, either as capitalists or as socialists, they are maximizing what it is that any ecosystem can give them at all times. Um, and not just maximizing it, but increasing over time what it is that you can draw from a particular place. And that, you know, the ways that those are expressed ideologically look different. Um, how they influence the political cultures of the two places are not identical. Um, but that kind of core belief seemed very shared by the, the kind of two systems. And then there's this kind of temporal dimension to that, which is an assumption that everything kind of falls into this neat um, kind of sense of history, kind of progressing through time. Everything gets better. It's a one-way street. Um, these are not ideologies that deal very well with kind of the ways in which biological energy is usually cyclical in some form, right? Animals have to be born and die. Plants grow at certain times of year and are fallow other times of year, Um there are systems that kind of want to erase that kind of just fundamental fact of life um, in pursuit of these ideas of sort of endless bountiful growth that is to serve people. And those ideas are really in contrast to the ones that um, are indigenous to the Bering Strait and that have served, you know, the multiple societies that live around the Bering Strait for thousands of years, which are far more kind of cognizant and, um, articulate about the ways in which people are a piece of those cycles, right? And if you acknowledge your place within those, um, it means that you're less likely to do things like kill every single bowhead whale you can possibly find, because you understand that next year you need to be able to, you know, continue to exist. Um, and continuing to exist requires that there's bowheads, that you're kind of linked to them in a reciprocal way rather than an extractive way. Um, and the, the idea that you can always just move on to the next resource, um, I think one of the things that, that researching this project really helped me think through is how recent an idea that is and how, um, in, in the kind of span of human experience, kind of anomalous that is, right? Um, and the really rich, full, um, happy ways that people can live without that expectation um, of kind of, of growth and exceeding whatever it is that we did last year with what we're going to do this year, um, which hopefully is, is something that we're all able to think with a little bit more in the future. Um, yeah, absolutely. And so like it's, you're talking about reciprocity and like the different ways that um, both local communities and people have a relationship with ecosystem and kind of like how they see their role, right? How they see their relationship as being part of it. And then like another very kind of contrasting view on the other side of like thinking about how, okay, how can we expand our, you know, ecological opportunities or whatever. Um, and, but like, it was really interesting, like what you're talking about, kind of like on the similarities of despite the ideologies between Soviets and Americans, like it was just very, um, focus on the concentration of 
of energy and kind of like how do we, you know, how can we use this ecosystem or landscape to kind of um, promote, you know, what we're trying to do and expand that and everything. Uh, the reciprocity part is really interesting. And like, if you don't mind, like, I'd love to hear your thoughts on like the reciprocity of um, the whales and like the hunting story that you told, because I had a conversation with my friend Tanah Whitemore last year. She lives in the Pryor Mountains in Montana. And her experience with bison is that there's like this reciprocity with, she calls it the rite of passage, where her perspective on it is that um, it's a mutually agreed upon thing. Like bison depend on on people, people depend on bison. The hunt is part of this this playing out of our existence. And there's this this reciprocity there of the bison choosing the hunter and not necessarily the other way around. Um, how, how does that shape out with people of the, of the far North? Uh, did you, did you see kind of some of that um, panning out or? Yeah, I should, I should preface this by saying that I am not from the far North. And so I am, mm-hmm. I am relaying the wisdom of others here, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, which I think is important to say. Um, but yes. And I, th- I think that this is, to me, when kind of reading the accounts of different kinds of whalers next to each other. So indigenous whalers, both in the past and in the present, and capitalist whalers from the 19th century, and then Soviet whalers from the 20th century. One of the most striking things to me is the ways in which um, indigenous whalers understand their relationship with the whales that they hunt, not as one of conquest or, um, you know, overcoming sort of nature in some raw sense, but actually one of supplication, right? That in order to, you know, live through a winter as a community, you need access to, you know, all of the things that a whale provides to a community from food to lighting, to heat, to, you know, the the rafters that people lived in historically, right? Um, So, you know, people are li- literally living in the heads of whales because the jawbones were were part of the architectural materials in a place that doesn't have many trees. And so that kind of understanding that any given whale hunt requires paying attention to what the whale is telling the whaler, right? Um, and that the whale has the opportunity to either choose to consent to be hunted or to refuse it. And that the refusal is based on how it is that the people in that whaling boat have treated the members of their community and community in a broad sense, right? Including people, but also including other kinds of beings in the world. So that this sort of source of ethics within the society is not just human beings. It's not dreamed up entirely in our heads. It actually emerges out of this relationship and out of really, you know, thousands of years of paying attention to what it is that these animals are saying um, and thinking of it explicitly as, you know, these are animals with moral capacity, with social worlds that overlap with, but are distinct from ours. Um, And that that was so different than the ways in which whalers who came to the Bering Strait from outside it understood whaling, which was, you know, as a means to an end usually, right. And, and, And sometimes, you know, these are people who had very little other option. I had I had a lot of sympathy for the the you know nineteenth century whalers who, you know, sometimes they were formerly enslaved people and this was their route out of bondage, or you know they were 
people who had extraordinarily few economic opportunities. Um, and this was a way to earn some money. Um, but it also reduced their relationship to Wales to one of turning them into money. And the, the Soviets had a kind of a similar um, sense in that the, you know, they interact with whales. Hunting is of course an intimate act, no matter how you carry it out. But at the end of the day, the whales were kind of serving this larger ideological project um, and were not kind of interacted with as individuals and certainly not individuals that would consent or refuse to participate in the project of being hunted. Yeah. It's, it's really fascinating. Um, you know, there's a, like there's a mindfulness and awareness to what you're talking about as far as the interdependence of people that understood, like understood the, the mutual relationship and interdependence that, that humans and nature, especially in a landscape like uh, Bering Strait would have. And, you know, I was, I was listening to a, a presentation the other day by um, P uh, Peter Senji from MIT. He was talking about, I think it was called like systems thinking for a better world. And he's really articulate and eloquent. And, and what he said was that like one of our, one of our challenges is that we, there's a gap between the interdependences that we understand and the interdependences that we create and just have and live with, you know, and that's a big part of our sustainability challenge is like understanding the gap there between like the interdependences that create our reality in nature and in our world and like, uh, you know, in our understanding and narratives of it. Um, so it's really interesting to think about that, how that might play out there. Yeah, that's a great observation. Um, and I feel like part of what I observed in kind of teasing out this intertwined Soviet American history is the ways in which um, kind of physical distance and particularly the distance between the people who consume things and the people who produce things or the, the entire ecosystems where things are produced, as that widens the ability to, to really have no sense of one's interdependence increases. Um, and I, I think a lot now that I live in Rhode Island, which is one of the you know major places that was consuming these 19th century commercially hunted bowhead whales. And that, you know, if I had been living exactly where I live now, 200 years ago, I would have been, well, not quite 200, 150 years ago, you know, I would have been wearing whale baleen um, in a corset. Like it would have been literally next to my skin all day, every day, but I would have had no need to, or necessarily even ability to know where that whale came from, right? It, it was already so disarticulated from all of the relationships that a whale has in the place that it lives when it's turned into a corset stay, um, or the oil that I pour into a lamp. Um, and if that was true, you know, in the 1850s in Rhode Island, it's, it's really, really true in the 2020s in Rhode Island, because the number of things that go into making my daily life possible come from so many places and at such distance and, you know, just it's a PhD's worth of work to figure out where all the parts of my cell phone came from, let alone how to be responsible to all of the places where those parts of my cell phone came from. Um, and I've started thinking less with this first book, but for trying to figure out ways to articulate kind of what it means when a political system actually takes away your capacity to be responsible at that level. Right. It's not giving us something. It's actually, it has reduced my choices as a moral agent in the world 
by making it extraordinarily difficult and time consuming. And sometimes, in fact, basically impossible to answer really simple questions like, what am I responsible to when I buy this thing or when I use electricity as part of my daily life? Um, because I think sometimes we, we imagine consumer agency to be far larger than it is, right? It is an important part of structuring these things, but there's also choices that we do not have. Um, and those have to do with where power is concentrated um, and, and who wants to kind of profit from it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we were talking before we started recording about some of those like invisibilities around environmental harm and kind of looking at it from a forensic lens. And so like, I think one of the things that I've learned um, through the summer and through, you know, my, my grad program at Virginia tech is that um, that there are invisible forces and things behind the curtain that happen. Like we, we take a system for granted. That's, this is just this way, but there are, invisibilities and there's a legibility and there's a logic behind all of that. And that's all manufactured and, and, and um, drafted and created out of like these power dynamics that you're talking about, right? The hierarchy and, and like how, how, how power coalesces and who wants that and who's manufacturing those, those narratives and, and why and what they have to lose, you know? So it's, it's, um, I think you're absolutely right. Like I hadn't thought about it in terms of, that aspect of consumer agency, because it's like, there's this constant question around sustainability in my head about like, which side of the spectrum can, are the levers on, right? Like, so from a consumer standpoint, it's like, what decisions can I make that can make a difference? If I buy sustainable shoes, um, or, you know, if I get um, organic produce or like, what are the implications of that decision? But like, how does it play out in my life? But how does that influence sustainability in a bigger way? Um, and so like, that's always something I wrestle with. It's like knowing where the levers really are. And like, I, I don't know, what do you think about that? Like, Well, I, I think like you, I think about it all the time. Um, and I think it's, I think it's complicated in the sense that you don't want to minimize the ways in which we are individually responsible, right? And it is important to be accountable to the communities that we influence in our in various ways, right? From the ones that we lived in directly to ones that we participate in, you know, almost unconsentingly at such a distance that we don't even see them. Um, and that, of course, is a is a sort of big range of of ways of being accountable. Um, but I also think that there's a way in which, um, particularly around sustainability and fossil fuel consumption, that this gets turned back onto individual consumers, that um, if you think about how little global greenhouse gas emissions went down last year, despite the fact that the world was essentially not moving, uh, individuals weren't traveling, there weren't international flights for months, there were people were driving their cars less because they were on lockdown. And it was a pretty small change, right? Um, the, the, the systems that feed us, um, that provide our electricity, that move the things that we need through space, those continued. Um, and those are the bulk of the emissions. I think that that was a, that was to me kind of a helpful sense of like, okay, there are things that I can and should do as an individual, but that's actually not the full equation. And the full equation is actually this completely other kind of work, which is about creating a political community it's not about how I consume. Um, 
it's in some ways the other piece of the, the reciprocity. Um, it's the piece about what am I giving back to the world? And in this case, it's making different kinds of political demands, saying I want to have choices that I do not currently see. Um, yeah, I, I love that perspective, Bathsheba. And, you know, I often think, you know, I was having this conversation with a friend of mine up here recently, and, and maybe maybe there is a springboard benefit to some of our individual consumer choices when it amplifies and enables our ability to get involved on a deeper level um, in that political sphere that you're talking about to, to shape direction and policy and so forth. Um, so like making small decisions in our life can help it along with being confident and feeling able to contribute to bigger shifts and transformations. Cause like a lot of the conversation that we have around this is it's like, it's, it's like, how do we decouple, right? How do we, we have this system in place that's bigger than all of us. And it's really complicated because systems interact. It's not just like one thing or the other. It's like interacting systems layered upon systems and everything. And so um, how do we, how do we make that transformation? How do we decouple to making better decisions for the planet? Um, and so I think that like sometimes like with those decisions that I make about how I source my food through maybe hunting um, or like having a garden or choosing organic produce, small decisions in the big scale. But um, people, I think that that can be a springboard to helping them build that mindfulness and awareness. Um, the other thing I love what you're saying is it's like, how complex it is because like you're talking about the consumption of, like during um, the pandemic um, and, and our carbon uh, output and so forth. And like all of the, like all of the complicated factors that contribute to all of that. But like you bring up a really good point. And like one thing I've been looking at is um, like recycling and really trying to get a, a better handle on that. Like plastics, bio, like microplastics in the, in the ocean, in the water, for instance, is, you know, a huge problem. And, and so like what I was intrigued by is like um, that there's this, there's this paradox to recycling where we all know that it makes sense, but there's also this kind of, I don't want to say dangerous part of it, but it's almost dangerous in the sense that it's like this contrived narrative that if we recycle, then that we're okay and that we can consume more. So it's like, it's like a paradox. And, and so, but what I'm saying is, is like, you know, that there are interests and there are money behind that message um, to, you know, to, to continue this kind of status quo. It's not just like consumers making these really difficult choices about recycling. It's about narratives that are being shaped by big money and big power and what those implications are, you know? Yeah. And I think that's a really good example. And I think one of the things that I have found really interesting about teaching energy history and, and sort of the history of people's use of fossil fuels, you know, from coal to derivatives like plastic is how often consumers actually were not asking for, you know, whatever new use of a, a fossil fuel was happening, right? It was being driven by other kinds of, of interests. Um, and it was usually being interest driven by somebody's profit line somewhere. Um, you know, people weren't asking for coal. Um, they weren't demanding the internal combustion engine. It's not sort of an automatic thing that we get up in the morning and we're like, okay, what is the new thing that we can consume today that we couldn't do yesterday? It actually takes like a lot of work. Um, and that's what advertising is about, right? Convincing people that you need this new thing. And that, that plastics is really a piece of that, that, you know, we had ways of using glass, for example, for a long time that you can sterilize it, you can reuse it, 
You can send it back to the creamery that brings you your milk, um, or you can send your Coca-Cola bottle back. Like it, um, and that it's being driven by not by consumer demand, but by other demands. And then you get used to it, and you don't know how to see your way out of using it. It becomes naturalized. But um, I think it's helpful both for me and for my students to see the ways in which you know, these things are A, really new, and B, actually required kind of a pedagogy of consumption, which means that we're actually very trainable <laughs> as people, right? <laughs> like our daily habits really can shift in ways that don't impact our capacity to live, you know, full and real lives in the world. Yeah, that's really well said. You know, like the one, I think the one, I'm not like a huge quote person, but like one quote that really sticks out with me is, um, Jeffrey Sachs wrote this book called The Age of Sustainable Development, and he's talking about historical burdens and, and geographical burdens, so to speak, and like how things play out and how there isn't like one specific answer to how things shape um, a particular place. But the one thing he kind of concludes with is that um, they're not fate or destiny. They're a reason to act, you know, and I think that mm -hmm. that's like a it's a healthy way to think about sustainability. It's like, okay, we have these challenges that seem insurmountable and wicked, but, um, but we can act and there are reasons to act and um, doesn't have to be, uh, you know, we don't have to make a perfect world. We can just make better decisions um, that reduce our impact and, and, you know, improve life for many people along the way um, and, and for the environment and ecosystems. What do you think um, in terms of resiliency, like how, like you walk through the book with, we're going to get back to floating coast. Sorry, I got you off on that tangent, but <laughs> we, we um, like with resiliency and like after a hundred years of, um, of activity from like outside forces, market forces, this like completely different view of energy and, and resources and systems. Um, what was your perspective on, the resiliency of, of people and the place around the Bering Strait and like how, like, how do you see, how has that played out? I guess is what I'm trying to ask. Yeah. So I think um, one of the things that writing this book and, and talking about it with people has made me realize is that the Arctic, I think has kind of appeared for many people living in the temperate parts of the world in the last 10 to 15 years, basically, um, in the context of climate change, right? And that this this is the thing that's going to come in and sort of unfreeze the Arctic from this timeless, changeless place that it has always been. And that actually on the ground, it's full of change all the time. It's incredibly dynamic, both in terms of human societies and the ecosystems that they live in. Um, and that the kinds of ecosystem changes that are emerging because of climate change really just build upon a series of changes that have been happening in this place uh, for the last 150 years or so due to this kind of energy extraction and, and the arrival of these colonial state systems that, that want to change everything on the ground. And the question of resilience to me is one where you see, you know, that the hopes and aspirations in both the United States and the Soviet Union was that you could make the Arctic like everywhere else make it sort of on the same temporal map in terms of, you know, this big sweep of human history that I was talking about, but also just make people's daily lives look identical to daily lives anywhere else. And the Soviet version of this is probably the most sort of obvious in the built environment because some of the apartments are basically identical 
um, on the Chukchi Peninsula as they are if you are in Kiev or if you're in Moscow or, you know, anywhere else, you know, heading 10 time zones west. Um, except that they're on stilts because of the permafrost. So they had to make some concessions to the environment. But but basically, they're like, well, people should live here the same way they do everywhere else. And that that desire for kind of a universal prescription about how people should interact with the places they're in, I think really cuts back on the resilience of societies on a local level. Um, and I don't think this is just the case in the Arctic, right? I think anywhere where you imagine that there's a kind of universal prescription to how it is that people should kind of create their living spaces um, and their economic activities in a particular environment and you just sort of export it without paying attention to the the ecological context they're doing it in, you actually kind of decrease their capacity to be resilient. Um, and in the Arctic, this is really visible in the fact that in the kind of long history of people inhabiting the Arctic, um, there has been also a long history of moving the place that you live in, Right. Some societies like the Gwich'in who I lived in, lived with in Old Crow, were explicitly nomadic. Um, so the idea of living in one particular place just made no sense. Um, and then, you know, cultures like the Inupiaq who live along the coast um, had settled spaces, but also would sometimes not live in them for a while because of changing environmental conditions, including environmental conditions that changed because of things like commercial whaling. And so there's just like a flexibility um, and, and a willingness to say, okay, this place is not going to provide what it provided 10 years ago. Um, we're going to move and find a place, um, where we can have those relationships. And that's of course, like not how either the Americans or the Soviets thought about the built environment, right? You don't move. It's the, that's like one of the signs that you've arrived as a society is that you stop moving around, um, and it's, I mean, we even use the language of retreat in, in reaction to climate change, right? It's managed retreat or strategic retreat or, you know, and I think that the kind of military logic behind that is not very covered up, right? Right. Um, it's not thinking about where is it that in 10 years we can actually kind of have a relationship with a place um, that is potentially, you know, better for us and better for the, the place itself. Um, it's about giving up. That is so well said. Like I, I like what you're saying about resiliency kind of occurring spatially on a on a local scale or at least a regional scale and having some flexibility makes a lot of sense, right? Um, because each I mean the realities of that landscape or the realities of that region or locale or community are unique to that in some aspects. And yeah, it is really interesting to think about how like standardization is um part of our whole kind of industrialization um uh, process and system, the linear economy that we've been dealing with for 150 years, but how that creates that much tension and conflict with our resiliency and our, our ability to be able to sustain um, local landscapes and our lifestyles and communities and future. Um, that's really well said. And like one thing, you know, one more comment about the book, um, and then, like, I'm I'm interested in what work you're working on now, Bathsheba, too. Um, like, I loved how, like, you brought it around at the, at the end of the book, like, when you're talking about um, energy, like, you bring it right back around it. And I love how you kind of close it out. I think it's in the epilogue. But you say that energy that sustains us is made by other beings, but energy is also what we put into the world. And it like demarcates what matters and we can still wager on the world 
we wish to compose. I, I think that's a wonderful, inspiring way to look at things. And it kind of like, I just looked at that, I had that written down and it's like, it's samely, it's like, it's really similar to what I was talking about with sax and the idea that we can, you know, it's worth working on. It's mm-hmm. great. Thank you right. for sharing that. Oh, well, thank you. I'm glad it, I'm glad it spoke to you. Yeah. So what, um, what are you working on now? Like what's going on? Do you have more books in, in the works or like what kind of projects do you have going on and what's inspiring you right now? I, I do kind of more in theory than in practice. I have another book in the works. It's been somewhat delayed because I haven't been traveling for the last 18 months like everyone else. Um, but I'm working on a book project about the Yukon River watershed. Um, and the, the questions that at least at this stage, and they may change, um, are motivating me in this project actually kind of emerged out of the first one, which is I felt like I kept kind of bumping up against the ways in which legal systems imagine political communities by who has rights to do what, um, or what has rights to do what, depending on what you think is a subject and what you think is an object in any given case. Um, and the Yukon watershed is it, to me an interesting place to think about this because it has very different indigenous traditions along the kind of 1500 miles of the watershed. Um, then the Russian and British empires meet on the watershed in the 19th century. And they of course have really, you know, they have different ideas from the indigenous societies that they're interacting with and they have different ideas from each other. Um, and then the United States and Canada share a border along the Yukon now. But like with my first book, the Yukon itself, you know, the, the river has all sorts of conditions that are not divided by the border. Where the salmon go, you know, the border lays across it. It's not made by the salmon. Um, what's in the water has to do with what people are doing upstream and people downstream have to deal with it. Um, so it's it's a transnational space in the 21st century, but it has to be managed as a kind of ecological space with some wholeness to it. Um, or at least there's some aspiration to try to manage it that way. I should say that doesn't always happen. Um, and so within that, you have all these questions of, you know, uh, do the fish that people want to have access to, do they have rights? Um, or who has rights to fish? Um, what, does the river itself need to have rights so that it can be represented as a whole entity? Um, and so I am just, I have those like view from 30,000 foot questions. What I do not yet have is the kind of empirical stuff um, because I haven't been in the archives and I haven't been up North um, to talk to folks about it, but hopefully that will change. Uh, I'm on leave next year so I can hopefully get to work on it. That is incredibly exciting. I cannot wait to read that. Like when you get dig into that and get that book working on, I mean, that is amazing. And like these, um, like talk about like these transboundary kind of approaches to like these considerations, right? Like there's like what you're saying about all of that and how those legal realities kind of intersect and the legibility behind that and the, the just the different questions. Uh, wow, that's going to be amazing. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> yeah, that's going to be great. And, you know, so, and I want to like, so with Floating Coast, people can find that just about anywhere they can find books, right? They can find yes. any any place out there on the internet, Floating Coast, Bathsheba DeMuth. It won, it won the Julia Ward Howe Award, right? In like 2020, 
It won the, I think I read that it was like a nature best book. It was like a best book for NPR. It was like George Perkins Marsh Award, I think, last year. Um, so many people recognize how good that book was, Bathsheba. So if you haven't, if you're a listener and you haven't read Floating Ghost yet by Bathsheba DeMuth, go out there, find it, get it, get it on your iPad or audiobook or wherever you find that stuff. And I, all I can say is you'll be glad you did. Um, you have any upcoming uh, speaking engagements or anything like that? I do. I actually have um, quite a few this fall that you can access from wherever you are because we, we appear to be once again going into a at least partially virtual world. Um, you can find a list of them. They're all on my website, um, which is just brdemuth.com. Um, um, and a bunch of them are virtual and you just... I'll link to them as soon as they have a, a page, but I'll be talking about whaling in some of them. Um, and I'll be talking about kind of ideas of apocalypse and how it plays in with the environment and the Soviet context in some of them. So. Cool. So I'll put a link to your, your website in the show notes for this. And people can also find you. I think I follow you on Instagram. I know I follow you on Twitter. Uh, it's a great Twitter feed. And so um, make sure that people can find all of that stuff. And I am just so thankful that, um, to have this opportunity to talk with you, Bathsheba. Thanks for sharing your stories and your perspective and wisdom. Um, it's been a wonderful podcast. Well, thank you so much, Todd. This was such an enjoyable conversation. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to the Outdoor Feast podcast. You can check out our other podcast and more at modcarn.com.